Well, good evening, church. Thank you, Brian and our, our band, for leading us in our time of worship there. It's a real privilege, isn't it, to be able to, to come into this building on a still but cold night and spend fellowship and time with other believers praising our King. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege that sometimes we take too freely for granted. And I hope that uh, tonight our, our passage would help focus our minds on the root of our privilege and encourage us to act in a manner befitting of the gift that we have been given. Our passage, of course, continues our series in the book of Titus. And uh, if you would turn with me to chapter 3, we'll read the first eight verses. As you, as you turn to it, um, you may have been aware from the notices over the past couple of weeks that we had the men's focus group um, last night. And rather than doing a, a study and a, a time of discussion, we had a curry. I think maybe the, the only mistake I made of the evening was to sit beside our dear brother Ian. We had uh, a very interesting discussion at the end of the table about the Reformation, about the merits of systematic theology, about biblical studies, about the origins of Catholicism, all these nice, gentle, easy discussions that you normally have over a curry. And as the night went on, we, we started discussing how often we should read the Bible during the week and what the purpose of the preacher was on a Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And Ian so candidly asserted that the purpose of the preacher was to take something from the text that wouldn't be obvious to the reader. So this evening, if you chat to Ian after, please do me a favor and pretend that you learned something tonight. Anyway, let's read Titus 3, beginning verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to open up your word, Lord, we pray that you would reveal more of your character to us. Lord, that as we as we read these words and attempt to digest them, Father, that you would show more of your goodness to us, that you would show more of your love to us. Lord, that you would inform our minds, that you would speak deep into our souls. And that, Father, that we would leave here tonight having come to a greater understanding of who you are. 
Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word tonight. In your precious son's name. Amen. The verse that I believe central to this passage and the one on which I would like us to frame our thoughts this evening is verse 5. And within that, I want us to pay particular attention to the interesting choice of the word regeneration. You'll have seen that if you're reading from the ESV. If you're reading from the NIV or the NLT, you will notice that those scholars translated the original Greek word to be either rebirth or new birth. And whilst the semantics of word choice between the translations here are perhaps academic, because I think eventually we would all come to the same conclusion, it is important to note that the only other place, according to scholars, that in the New Testament where a similar connotation of the word regeneration is used is in Matthew's Gospel and verse 28 of chapter 19 where it records Jesus as saying this to his 12 apostles. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That phrase, in the new world, or in the regeneration, isn't just speaking about the rebirth of humans, but rather the rebirth of all creation. And that's how I think we are to read Titus 3. You see, Jesus conceives the new birth as something that will happen to all of creation, not just human beings. Human beings are not the only ones who are fallen, who are defiled and disordered. All creation is. When human beings sinned at the very beginning, God made all creation a visible display of the horrors of sin. Disease, natural disasters, degeneration. These are all part of the visual, audible, touchable signs of moral decay when sin entered the world and still pervades it to this day. Romans chapter 8, 20 to 23 speaks about this scale of regeneration when Paul clarifies some of Jesus' words. If you're to, to look at it, verse 20 begins, the creation, that's all of it, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, there will be a great renewal someday, and it will happen so that creation joins the children of God in their glorious renewal. It goes on to say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's the imagery of the new birth. Furthermore, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. So when we put all that together, the picture seems to be something like this. God's purpose is that the entire creation is to be born again. That is the whole universe will replace its corruption and disease and degeneration and disasters with a whole new order, a new heaven and a new earth. This will be the great universal regeneration, the great universal new birth. 
So when Paul uses this word in Titus 3 and 5, he wants us to see that our new birth is part of that. The newness we have as a result of our regeneration is the first fruits of the greater newness we will have when our bodies are made new as part of the universe being made new. So when we think of our new birth, think of it as the first installment of what's coming. Our bodies in the whole world will one day take part in this regeneration. God's final purpose is not spiritually renewed bodies, souls inhabiting decrepit bodies in a disease and disaster ravaged world. His purpose is a renewed world with renewed bodies and renewed souls that take all of our renewed senses and make them a means of enjoying and praising God. What a promise. When you hear the word regeneration in Titus 3 and 5, hear it that big. And when he says in verse 7 that the aim of this new birth is we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, he means heirs of everything. Included in that, he means the new heavens, the new earth, the new body, new perfected relationships, new sinless sight of all that is good and glorious, and new capacities for a kind of pleasure in God that will exceed our wildest dreams. That's the unusual signal of what the new birth is. It's the first installment of the final universal regeneration of the universe. So it is in this context that I would like us to frame our thoughts as we ask ourselves three questions tonight. Why do we need regeneration? How are we regenerated? And do we understand the importance of our regeneration? Why do we need regeneration? Well, without putting too fine a point on it, our passage answers the question quite explicitly. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This passage is written from the perspective of one who has been reborn or regenerated. It is written in the past tense, for we ourselves were once those things. This is not a description of the material creation. It's a description of the human heart. Those are all moral evils, not physical evils. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to sinful pleasures, malice, envy, hated and hating. We are all in there somewhere. And perhaps tonight for you, these things aren't part of the past tense. Perhaps these are things very much of the present tense. Perhaps you haven't been reborn. Or perhaps you have, but you have the capacity, like me, in our brokenness to still struggle with some of these things. And if you fit into the former category, those yet to experience rebirth or regeneration, then please allow me to encourage you to just think carefully about what life may look like as someone reborn. Consider what it would be to have these things in the past tense. Consider what it would look like to have a hope and a certain future. And if you fit into the second category, one reborn yet one who still struggles, then let me 
encourage and challenge you. To encourage you in the sense that you are not perfect and you will stumble into sin at times. It is part of who we are. 1 John 1 and verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No matter how hard we try, we sin constantly and therefore we are far from perfect. We commit sins of commission, doing things that we shouldn't and we commit sins of omission, not doing things that we should. I may sin by stealing or taking the Lord's name in vain or I may sin through omission by failing to rejoice or failing to love God with all my heart, all my soul and all my strength. But thankfully, God sees and knows our shortcomings. And that's why in daily life, we need his undeserved favor. We need his grace. In spite of us, his infinite love is unconditional. Our relationship to God is not based on our perfection, but on Christ's. His perfect obedience is credited to us when God looks at us. He sees us as perfect. If we could have been perfect on our own strength, then Christ's death would have been unnecessary. But also let me challenge you in the sense that we as believers, knowing that we have been reborn, are to earnestly desire to put to death all those things that would come in the way of our relationship with God. We are to get rid of all those things that ensnare us. And we are to remind ourselves of our commitment to do that. That's why the chapter opens with the words, remind them, and then lists off positive attributes. And why it later goes on in verse 8 to explain that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, it says, are excellent and profitable for people. In other words, it's better to devote oneself to living faithfully for God and to remind ourselves regularly of that calling. Allow me to tell you a little story about a man who regularly faced similar challenges and who summarized his challenges in a poem that eventually became a hymn that we are all familiar with about God's grace. This man's name was Robert Robinson. And it was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London. But Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson cut a lonely figure. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he set foot across a church door, years of wandering, years of disillusionment and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love of God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. And as Robinson moved along the pavement, he heard the clip-clop of a horse-drawn carriage approaching behind him. Sticking up his hand to hail the driver and to get out of the street, the cab stopped, but in it, Robinson observed that it was occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's Day. So he waved the driver on. But the woman of the carriage ordered it stopped and said, Sir, 
I would be happy to share this carriage with you. You're going to church, are you not? And Robinson was about to decline, but he paused and said, yes, I guess I am. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. And as the carriage rolled forward, Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. And immediately there was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said. And she reached into her purse and withdrew from it a small book of inspirational verses. And she opened it to the paragraph that she had earmarked and handed the book over to him. I was just reading a poem by a man named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He took the book, nodding, and said, yes, I wrote those words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she explained. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words as he was reading. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words and I've lived those words. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. But the woman responded, you also wrote, here's my heart, oh take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson, it's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson, in that moment he turned his heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. Isn't that a wonderful story of a man's regeneration and a helpful reminder for us to remind ourselves to devote ourselves to his ways, to ask the Lord regularly to tune our hearts for his praise. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's why we need regeneration. Because we are not able to turn ourselves away from sin And we're in need of His cleansing and His Spirit to show us and to guide us through our lives. We know why we need it. How then can we be regenerated? Cast your eye to verse 4, a verse that we should treasure supremely. It starts with a but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. But God. Prior to that but, it says we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to sinful pleasures, malicious, envious, hated and hating. But. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, He, God, saved us. How are we regenerated? How are we saved? Only through and only by the loving kindness of the one who caused the but in this sentence. The one who stepped in, the one who intervened, the one who removed the scales from our eyes. We were slaves 
to desires and pleasures that were so powerful that we could not taste and see that the Lord was good. So far as our ability to know and trust and love God was concerned, we were dead. But he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How does God do this? How does the new birth happen? You may recall some uh, weekends ago from our, our morning service, Willie preached through the opening of chapter 3 in John's Gospel, where it records this interesting conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus and with Jesus, when Nicodemus is, is trying to ascertain just exactly what was going on with Jesus. And he says to him in that passage, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, somewhat perplexed, says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You can see the common language and theme between John 3 verse 5 and Titus 3 and verse 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in Titus, Paul says that God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in John 3, you have born of water and the Spirit. And in Titus 3, you have the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a, a kind of washing, a kind of renewal. John Piper argues that he believes the language that, that Jesus used in John 3 has its origins in the book of Ezekiel. And if you're to turn there and look at chapter 36, you'll see about halfway down chapter, uh, verse 25, it says this, for God promises this to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my rules. When John records Jesus' words, he's saying that the time of the new covenant promises has arrived. Ezekiel's promise is coming to pass by the spirit in connection with me, Jesus. The spirit gives life and I am the way, the truth and the life. John 14 and 6. And when the Spirit connects you to me by faith, you experience a new birth. And there are at least two ways to look at it. Cleansing from all that is past and renewal for all that is future. So when Paul says here in verse 5 that God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he means roughly the same thing. The promises of the new covenant have arrived. The beginning of the kingdom of God is here. The final universal regeneration has begun. 
And your new birth is a cleansing from all the sin that you have ever committed. And it is the creation of a new nature by the Holy Spirit. You are still you after the new birth. But there are two changes. You are clean and you are new. That is what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be regenerated. And what Paul wants to emphasize here is that it is as a result of the way God is and not of a result of what we could have done, even in righteousness. Verses 4 and 5 give us three descriptions of the way God is and put this in contrast to anything we might try to do to be born again ourselves. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is the big overarching idea in this text, but the specific way God does it is by his character. And Paul traces both of them back to God's goodness and his kindness in verse 4 and his mercy in verse 5. This is Paul's ultimate answer to how God regenerates sinners. He regenerates them because God is good. God is loving. God is merciful. We know why we are regenerated. We know how we are regenerated. But how do we grasp the importance of our regeneration? This picture of, of cleansing is a wonderful picture of truth, is it not? When God brings us into the fold, He completely cleanses us. He takes all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our iniquity, and He washes it away. He disregards it and He deals with it because He is good, because He is loving, because He is merciful. And not only does He do this, but He then renews us by His Spirit. He gives us free access to the Holy Spirit, which is able to help us to walk in His ways and adhere to His statutes. And when I was reflecting on this, it caused me to think about how flippant I can be around this particular subject. I mean, how often do I wake up in the morning and ponder afresh how wonderful it is to have been cleansed from my sin and how wonderful it is to have His Spirit living within me. How fundamentally thankful should I be for those changes? And when I think of this, I'm often reminded as I read the Old Testament of all the lengths that the Jews had to go to in order to try and right themselves with God. Take, for example, the Day of Atonement recorded in Leviticus 16. On this day, you have the, the high priest over all the Jewish people, and he would take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And the priest brought the animals before the Lord and then he would cast lots between the goats, one to be a sacrifice and the other to be a scapegoat. The first goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people and its blood used to cleanse the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar. And then after the cleansing, the, the live goat was brought before the high priest and laying his hands on the scapegoat, the high priest was to confess over it all the wickedness 
and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And the people would then drive this goat out of the camp, out into the wilderness, as to remove their sin. And this goat would be burdened and weighed down by all of the sin and slander, all the debauchery and evil that the people had committed, just so that they could attempt to get on a right footing with God. And yet now, we can be assured of a right footing with God. Not because we sacrificed. Not because we have gone through a process of ceremonial cleansing. Not because we have given up on our best or gone that extra mile. Not because we've been particularly charitable. Not even because we've been particularly religious. Indeed, not because we have done any good works at all. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us purely because he is loving, because he is merciful, because he is good. Church, does that help change our disposition towards flippancy? Does it help to give us a lens, an insight into how fortunate we are, that even though it was our sin that separated us from God, even though that was our problem, God, through an act of ultimate grace, chose to step in and save us without any work on our behalf. And this act of pure grace is important for us because it should cause our hearts and our attitudes to exhibit thankfulness. And thankfulness will turn to praise and to worship. And praise and worship is what he deserves. This act of pure grace is important because it reminds us of what we once were and it encourages us to take hold of what we now are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Off with the old, on with the new. This act of pure grace is important for us because it should encourage us to tell others about what he has to offer. Frederick Bochner once said, And now, brothers, I will ask you a terrible question, and God knows I ask too of myself. Is the truth beyond all truths, beyond the stars, just this, that to live without him is the real death, that to die with him the only life? Church, if we know regeneration, if we know new birth, if we know a life transformed by grace, if we know the why and we know the how, should we not make it of utmost importance to tell those who have yet to experience all the goodness of our Savior? We who were once dead have been cleansed, renewed, been blessed with the Holy Spirit and promised life eternal. That's a truth worth sharing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your unmerited grace. We give you thanks for your loving kindness, for your mercy for the fact that you are always good. 
Lord, we thank you that we can come as people once given to terrible things and poor attitudes. Lord, that we can take these things and repent of them and be assured that because of your Son, we can know you. And that, Lord, when you look at us, you will not see those things, but you will see us perfected through Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for that amazing grace. We thank you for that act of amazing love. And Lord, we pray that that truth would become part of the very fabric of who we are. Lord, that you would help the Holy Spirit to guide us and to challenge us, to encourage us. Lord, to be people who are given over to you, people of worship, people who take hold of who we now are. And Father, that we would follow the command to tell others. Lord, that they too, we pray, would come to know your loving grace and the hope that lies in eternity with you. So be with us this week, we pray in your most precious Son's name. Amen.